From New York, this is Democracy Now! Excessive ambitions and vested interests have led to treason, betrayal of the country, its people, and the cause for which the soldiers and commanders of the Wagner Group had fought and died for, side by side with our other units. Russian President Vladimir Putin tries to restore calm after a short-lived armed mutiny launched Friday by the Wagner mercenary group comes to an end with a deal that exiles the group's chief, Yevgeny Prigozhin, to Belarus and drops all charges against those who joined the rebellion that reached the outskirts of Moscow. Though even the dropping of charges is unclear at this moment. We'll host a roundtable discussion starting in Moscow with Nina Khrushcheva, new school professor, great-granddaughter of former Soviet premier Nikita Khrushchev. And we'll go to Kiev to get response and speak with an expert on the Wagner Group. Then dueling rallies in Washington, D.C. As pro-choice and anti-choice activists mark the first anniversary of the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, Vice President Pence led the anti-choice activists. Because of your work and because of your prayers, the Supreme Court of the United States sent Roe versus Wade to the ash heap of history where it belongs and gave America a new beginning for life. We'll get an update on the state of abortion access in the United States a year after Dobbs. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Russia's military's withdrawn troops and tanks from the streets of Moscow after the head of the Wagner mercenary group called off a short-lived arm mutiny he launched Friday. Wagner fighters stopped their advance on the outskirts of Moscow late Saturday after officials reached a deal that guaranteed their safety. They also withdrew from the southern Russian city of Rostov, which they had seized, and returned to their bases as part of the deal, the Wagner chief, Yevgeny Prigozhin, agreed to go into exile in Belarus. The Kremlin also said he and his fighters would avoid criminal charges despite the revolt. On Saturday, Putin made a brief national address in which he refrained from mentioning Prigozhin by name, but denounced his actions as treason. We will protect both our people and our statehood from any threats, including internal betrayal. And what we are facing is precisely betrayal. Excessive ambitions and vested interests have led to treason, betrayal of the country, its people, and the cause for which the soldiers and commanders of the Wagner Group had fought and died for, side by side with our other units. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said the revolt by Wagner mercenaries had exposed chaos in Russia after headlines will go to Moscow and Kyiv for the latest. In Sudan, fighters with the paramilitary rapid support forces stormed the headquarters of a heavily armed police unit in Khartoum Sunday, seizing stockpiles of weapons and ammunition. Since Saturday, there have been reports of intense airstrikes and artillery fire across Sudan's capital in the western Darfur region. Witnesses say fighting killed at least a dozen civilians Sunday. Witnesses say RSF fighters have joined Arab militias in a campaign of ethnic cleansing in Darfur. UNICEF reports fighting in Sudan has now displaced two and a half million people with at least 330 children among the dead in Syria. At least nine people were killed and dozens more injured Sunday as Russian warplanes attacked rebel-held parts of the northwestern province of Idlib. In the bloodiest attack, a Russian fighter jet bombed a vegetable market crowded with shoppers. 
Guatemala's presidential election is headed to a runoff after no candidate received over 50 percent of votes needed to claim victory Sunday. Former Vice President and First Lady Sandra Torres of the centrist party National Unity of Hope appeared to be in the lead. Torres previously ran for president twice and has been accused of corruption and campaign finance violations. Congress member Bernardo Arevalo of the progressive Movimiento Semilla Party placed second, surprising many. He's the son of the former president, Juan Jose Arevalo, who pushed for revolutionary social reforms when he was in office from 19. 1945 to 1951. Samia has promoted the protection of human and indigenous rights, press freedom, and policies combating the climate crisis, among other measures. In Sierra Leone, voters took to the polls to choose a new president over the weekend amidst a catastrophic economic crisis and spiraling living costs. Current President Julius Madabio and his main opponent, Samora Kamara, have both claimed victory, though official results have yet to be released. Violent clashes erupted following the election, with police firing tear gas at supporters of the All People's Congress Opposition Party as they awaited election results outside the party's headquarters in the capital, Freetown. One woman was severely wounded by the crackdown. A party representative spoke to reporters as heavily armed soldiers forced people from the building. Just here on a press conference, and then the next day we knew we started hearing firing, and uh, our whole office is surrounded by police and army. All of the vehicles around have been damaged, including that belonging to our presidential candidate. He is also upstairs. We were all tear gassed, live bullet shots. In Greece, the conservative prime minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, is celebrating re-election after his new democracy party won over 40 percent of votes in Sunday's runoff vote. The leftist opposition party, Syriza, came in a distant second with just 20 percent of the vote. A newly created far-right party known as the Spartans took almost 5 percent, surpassing the 3 percent threshold to enter parliament. Mitsotakis came to power in 2019 after an anti-immigrant hate campaign in which he pledged to block the arrival of a asylum seekers on Greek shores. Northern China suffered a weekend of record temperatures, with highs in the capital Beijing topping 40 degrees Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit for three consecutive days. Authorities are warning of more dangerous heat in the forecast and recommend people limit their time outdoors. This is a 28-year-old Beijing resident. I'm definitely worried, but I think I'm still young and can handle it. But I hope the older people will go out as little as possible these days and just stay at home. The temperature outside is just too hot. If your physical strength is not good or you have high blood pressure, it is easy to get heat stroke. Scientists are sounding the alarm over an extreme ocean heat wave in the North Atlantic, where surface temperatures are as much as 5 degrees Celsius or 9 degrees Fahrenheit above normal. Marine biologists have described the unprecedented warming as a marine wildfire that threatens a mass die-off of fish, oysters, and other wildlife. In Panama, authorities are preparing to reduce the number of ships allowed through the Panama Canal and are considering new weight restrictions on vessels making the transit. A Severe drought has led to a shortage of water needed for locks that help move container ships across the Panama Canal. Here in the United States, high humidity and extreme temperatures above 100 degrees Fahrenheit are forecast to continue in Texas for much of the week. Parts of southwest Texas hit 119 degrees Fahrenheit Friday, just one degree shy of Texas's all-time highest temperature recorded three decades ago. 
In Paris, dozens of heads of state wrapped up a two-day summit on climate finance Friday without an agreement to tax greenhouse gas emissions produced from international shipping. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said the Biden administration would consider the proposal, which was advanced by the French President Emmanuel Macron. The climate action group Oil Change International noted leaders of wealthy nations are largely absent from the meeting, saying they missed a critical opportunity to redirect billions of dollars from fossil fuels debt and the ultra-rich to address the climate crisis. This is Mitzi Tan, a climate activist from the Philippines who joined protests on the sidelines of the talks. We are all in this crisis together. We are not equally impacted. Countries like the Philippines will experience it a lot worse. But we all have to band together to demand for justice, to demand for no more fossil fuel finance, and to demand for debt cancellation, because that is what we need to ensure that communities and marginalized people across the world are able to access this finance and actually adapt, mitigate, and live in this climate crisis. Hundreds of abortion supporters rallied in Washington, D.C. over the weekend, marking the first anniversary of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn abortion rights under the 1973 ruling Roe v. Wade. This is one of the protesters, Nadine Saylor. We need to be engaged. If we don't show up and if we don't participate, we get what we get, and what we get is our rights taken away. The protest came as anti-choice activists also rallied in Washington, D.C. Former Vice President, 2024 Republican presidential hopeful Mike Pence told a gathering of Christian conservatives the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe was a historic victory, but said it didn't go far enough and called for a nationwide 15-week abortion ban. Because of your work and because of your prayers, the Supreme Court of the United States sent Roe versus Wade to the ash heap of history where it belongs and gave America a new beginning for life. We'll have more on the fight over reproductive rights in the U.S. later in the broadcast with abortion access correspondent of the nation, Amy Littlefield. Millions of LGBTQIA people and supporters took to the streets around the world to celebrate pride over the weekend. In Turkey, advocates led rallies in Istanbul defying a ban by the conservative government of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who's been condemned by human rights groups for violently targeting LGBTQIA people with hate speech and discriminatory policies. Last Sunday, a trans pride march was also attacked by Turkish police after activists gathered across Istanbul despite a ban facing repression from security forces that fired rubber bullets and tear gas at demonstrators. In Mexico City, dozens of LGBTQIA couples held mass wedding ceremonies Friday to kick off pride celebrations. This is Edgar Mendoza, who married his partner of a decade. I feel very happy because we have been together for 10 years, and with this marriage, we got to take another step that we wanted, which is to become a more stable family. I think this document is very important, beyond being a paper or a marriage symbol. It's the security I can bring to my family. And in the U.S., millions participated in pride marches in hundreds of cities around the country, including New York City, Chicago, Houston, San Francisco, to urge supporters to unite and continue fighting in the face of intensifying attacks against the LGBTQIA community. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. 
As Russian President Vladimir Putin tries to restore calm after a short-lived armed mutiny launched Friday by the Wagner Mercenary Group, we'll host a roundtable discussion beginning in Moscow, then to Kiev, and we'll speak with an expert on the Wagner Group. Stay with us. by Smashing Pumpkins. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Russia, where the government's working to restore calm after a short-lived armed mutiny was launched Friday by the Wagner Mercenary Group. Wagner fighters stopped their advance on the outskirts of Moscow late Saturday after officials reached a deal that guaranteed their safety. They also withdrew from the southern Russian city of Rostov, which they had seized, and returned to their bases. As part of the deal, Wagner Group chief Yevgeny Prigozhin agreed to go into exile in Belarus, where President Alexander Lukashenko is a close ally of Putin. Lukashenko m- mediated the deal. The Kremlin also said the Wagner Group head and his fighters would avoid criminal charges despite the revolt, though today that's now being called into question. Today's state-controlled TV in Russia showed footage of Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu meeting with Russian military officers in Ukraine, though it's unclear when that footage was from. Also today on Russian TV, Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin made the first public comments by a senior Russian official since the deal was made. Russia переживает. Russia is going through an important time in its history. As the president noted, virtually the entire military, economic, information machine of the West is directed against us. We need to make calculated, unified decisions to effectively achieve goals set by the leader of the state. This comes as Russian President Vladimir Putin made a brief national address Saturday and refrained from mentioning the Wagner Group leader by name, but denounced his actions as treason. We will protect both our people and our statehood from any threats, including internal betrayal. And what we are facing is precisely betrayal. Excessive ambitions and vested interests have led to treason, betrayal of the country, its people, and the cause for which the soldiers and commanders of the Wagner Group had fought and died for, side by side with our other units. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said in his nightly video address Saturday, the revolt by the Wagner mercenary troops in Russia had exposed chaos in the country. At one point, he switched to his native language of Russian 
to address Russians and Putin. I will say it in Russian. The man from the Kremlin is obviously very afraid and probably hiding somewhere, not showing himself. I am sure that he is no longer in Moscow. He calls somewhere and asks for something. He knows what he is afraid of because he himself created the threat. All evil, all losses, all hatred. He himself who spreads it. What will we Ukrainians do? We will defend our country. We will defend our freedom. We will not be silent and we will not be inactive. We know how to win and it will happen. And what will you do? The longer your troops stay on Ukrainian land, the more devastation they will bring to Russia. The longer this person is in the Kremlin, the more disasters there will be. On Sunday, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the Wagner Group rebellion revealed cracks in Putin's power. He spoke on ABC News. So I think this is clearly uh, we see cracks uh, emerging where they go, if, if, if anywhere, uh, wh- when they get there. Very hard to say. I don't want to speculate on it, uh, but I don't think we've seen the final act. Uh, this has been uh, a devastating strategic failure for Putin. Uh, across virtually every front, uh, economic, uh, military, uh, geopolitical standing. This comes as NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said Monday, the aborted rebellion demonstrates the scale of the Kremlin's strategic mistake in waging war in Ukraine. The events over the weekend are an internal Russian matter, and yet another demonstration of the big strategic mistake Uh, that President Putin made uh, with his legal uh, annexation uh, or his legal annexation of Crimea and the war against uh, Ukraine. As Russia continues its assault, it is even more important to continue our support to Ukraine. We begin our coverage in Moscow, where we're joined by Nina Khrushcheva, professor of international affairs at the New School, great-granddaughter of the former Soviet premier Nikita Khrushchev. Her books include The Lost Khrushchev, Journey into the Gulag of the Russian Mind, and In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones. Professor Khrushcheva, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. So um, this is the first show we've done since the Wagner Rebellion. Uh, We haven't seen Prigozhin, though they said he's going to go into exile in Belarus. We also haven't seen Putin since he gave that speech on Saturday. And now there are all sorts of questions that, though the Kremlin said that all of the Wagner folks, including Prigozhin, would be granted, um, would have the charges dropped. That's not clear right now. You're in Moscow. You've walked the streets. What is the understanding of what happened among the Russian people? Well, thank you, Emmy. Uh, there's a little bit of a relief, although in Moscow, at least, there was very um, kind of almost confidence, not confidence, but certainty that it's not going to go far enough, it's going to be resolved very quickly, that it's just so inconceivable, although what's inconceivable in Russia nowadays uh, is a stretch, but uh, that that Prigozhin uh, is not going to take over the Kremlin, although now we're learning, for example, that about billions and billions of rubles have been taken from the banks on Saturday when it was all going on. Then the flights have been filled and the prices, the airline prices doubled or tripled. So people 
were preparing for the worst. But what when I walked around, even in the afternoon, when the uh, when the Wagner troops were were uh, going and approaching. Uh, approaching uh, approaching Moscow, there was still sort of a disbelief that it can result in anything but resolution, which indeed happened by 10 o'clock on Saturday. Uh, Putin supposedly has won. He would have won much better if indeed, as you mentioned, after that very fiery speech and very angry speech, because Prigozhin was his creation. Prigozhin exists because Putin fed him, allowed him to be, uh, allowed these military uh, mercenary groups to be uh, to be formed. If Putin on that Saturday, Saturday night, when Alexander Lukashenko said, we resolved it, I helped, I'm so great, then Prigozhin came out and said, we resolved it. When Putin himself would have come out and explained to the Russians and to everybody how uh, that treason that he uh, so firmly hated uh, in the morning on Saturday, then being resolved because it really was a military mutiny, and yet somehow they're going to be pardoned. And Putin is absolutely silent. It's not that the pardon is in question, but the um, uh, Attorney General office is saying that we, it's we are still working on it. It's still not clear how soon the charges could be dropped. So I don't think it's a question. It's whether they are continuing to have some sort of negotiation and would be very interesting to hear when Prigozhin in fact gets to Belarus if he does in fact uh, get to Belarus in one piece. Hmm. Um, if you can talk about the significance of uh, the place where the rebellion um, took over a city of over a million people, Rostov, which um, is really the central command of the war on Ukraine and the fact that the Russian people—and did you see this on Russian television or in social media—and there is a question about will Putin allow all this social media to continue—the cheering of Prigozhin uh, by the people, people taking selfies with him. This is before we no longer saw him. Well, uh, yes, it was Rostov on Don. It's very south, very close to Ukraine. And so the speculation, we don't know, but uh, supposedly and most likely there've been some uh, um, kind of, it wasn't just Prigozhin walking, but it was a coordinated, uh, some coordinated effort, including probably with the people in the army, because he was able to, in fact, have a meeting with two higher ups in the Russian army. Uh, his um, great concern and kind of great hatred is for uh, Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu, and these are the people that work with Shoigu, and suddenly they were there uh, in the headquarters and he was kind of humiliating them uh, being being present. So, And I think it seems to me that Prigozhin and others, there was uh, a little bit of a hope and uh, clearly didn't work out the way they wanted it, uh, that uh, at least the um, some in the, in the Russian army, in the Russian command, very disillusioned with the way um, the war in Ukraine is, is going on, would probably be more supportive. That didn't work out. So the original, uh, the original idea was there. That's why they were not shot on. Uh, the Prigozhinites were not shot on, but then uh, Clearly, the the move was uh, was fizzled out. So the question is how 
uh, really and now in the for the future how really uh, strong uh, the support for Putin will remain and how really many uh, factions that probably are in the Russian army or are in the Russian elites how much they will continue to gel together behind the uh, behind the Kremlin leader the negotiations were going on obviously right from the beginning and uh, in some ways Prigozhin miscalculated which left him weak but also if Putin came out a victor it also didn't really show him in in the strong light either so it ends as uh, uh, Zelensky President Zelensky correctly uh, pointed out it ends to more discombobulation among the Russian elite and also the future of Russia and the future of the war in Ukraine I mean, as not only a professor of international affairs, Nina Khrushcheva, but as the great-granddaughter of Khrushchev, you certainly know Russia's history well. Um, is this a quashed rebellion, or is this the beginning of cracks in the Putin edifice? Um, uh, go back to 1991. Go back to other failed coups and what happened next. Well, that's a fascinating question because it is, I mean, it is a squashed, quashed rebellion in a sense, but it's also, and I would even disagree with uh, Anthony Blinken that it's the beginning because we've seen right from the beginning of the war, uh, almost a year and a half ago, that there is really not much coherency in uh, in Putin's entourage. Yes, they kind of have to say they support it, but it's very unequal. Sometimes the voices for, sometimes voices again, some again, sometimes voices of more reason and whatnot, they appear. So that's that solidity that Putin was able to display until 2022 has been really uh, waning away for the whole year plus. So this is just another moment of this uh, of this kind of uh, fall, falling apart uh, in cracks. I think the interesting part of this rebellion, and I cannot really speak to history here, because basically what we're seeing is Putin's a right-wing government, is a, a militancy uh, and, and nationalism is part of its agenda. Prigozhin is a bloody nationalism, bloody militancy, almost fa complete fascism. Uh, is part of its agenda. So we really haven't, because before, as you mentioned, 91, it was the liberals against uh, the reformers against the non-reformers, against the hardliners. Most coups have been like that. This is, we have one uh, kind of latent fascism or latent, uh, latent uh, or less bloody nationalism versus extreme bloody nationalism. And that's something that I cannot remember, uh, at least in, in recent Russian history, ever happening. I wanted to go to the voice of Prigozhin. On Saturday, the Wagner chief said in a recording that was on Telegram, uh, he'd ordered his fighters who'd been advancing on Moscow to turn around and return to their bases in order to avoid spilling Russian blood. ЧВК Wagner хотели расформировать. They want to disband the Wagner military company. We embarked on a march of justice on June 23rd. In 24 hours, we got to within 200 kilometers of Moscow. And this time, we did not spill a single drop of our fighters' blood. Now the moment has come when blood could be spilled. Understanding that Russian blood would be spilled on one side, we are turning our columns around and going back to field camps as planned. I mean, he had called it a march of justice, but what really changed for him to turn around? Did anything unpredictable happen? I mean, in fact, 
wasn't it the opposite? Uh, he met no resistance, uh, just these cheers. And again, I want to get to, has new information been revealed to the Russian people? Uh, seeing a top former Russian uh, Putin ally called Putin chef, right? They uh, really grew up in their political career in St. Petersburg together. Um, attacking uh, the whole Russian approach to Ukraine and talking about the unnecessary deaths of Russian soldiers. Well, yes, but then he's looking and asking for more unnecessary death of, of Russian soldiers because he's looking for uh, complete mobilization, complete militarization. He actually is, uh, uh, is, is accusing Putin, accusing the Kremlin, accusing Minister of Defense that, uh, that the war is not going uh, worry enough. It should be more war. So this is all uh, in many ways like Putin. He is very, um, very skilled with, with rhetoric that is actually incredibly contradictory because he was asking to spill more Russian blood. And one of the another thing about the cheers, I wouldn't really over um, uh, overestimate the cheers. Yes. And if we see uh, we see pictures from Rostov on Don, for people, it was more entertainment. For people, it was was uh, the heroes. Of, of the war in Ukraine uh, going against other heroes of the war in Ukraine because the Shoigu is a hero and Prigozhin is a hero. So it was more the sign of Russian absurdity. And I know if you saw that uh, the Prigozhin, one of the Prigozhin tanks got stuck in a um, in a gate that going into circus. And it's like, well, that's kind of a symbol of what uh, what Russia is all about. So that's, I mean, the cheering is 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 the cheering of the more to the absurdity because the people I talked about talked to in Moscow, they were saying, well, whatever Putin is, my God, this is the bunch of rapists and murderers. We certainly don't want to be ruled like the, uh, ruled by people like those. And so for for them, uh, you know, the worst choice is still a better choice. So Putin is the better choice for them. We're talking to Nina Khrushcheva in Moscow, and we want to go to Kiev as well, where we're joined by Denis Pilash, Ukrainian political scientist, historian, member of the Ukrainian Democratic Socialist Organization. He's also an editor at Commons, Journal of Social Criticism. Um, Denis Pilash, thanks for joining us again, uh, but certainly under very different circumstances. How was this rebellion— um, if it is a short-lived rebellion, or is it the beginning of something, perceived in Kyiv, we just played the president, Zelensky, addressing Russians and Russian soldiers in Russian, uh, which is actually his first language. Thanks, Amy. So, first of all, we should say that even uh, when uh, Russia was caught by this uh, rebellion, mutiny, um, attempt of a coup. Uh, still, uh, Ukrainian cities have been uh, attacked by Russian missiles, as usual, as they have been uh, in recent two months almost constantly. So we had uh, people, uh, civilians, uh, killed in Kyiv, in Kherson, and other places. So uh, ultimately, not much has changed in, in terms of this uh, war on, on Ukrainians, including ordinary civilian Ukrainians. But uh, lots of people were uh, completely agreeing with this take that uh, Russia's militarism now is ripping uh, what it saw. So it brought death and destruction to Ukraine. And now the same boomerang 
came back to um, to Russia itself, uh, namely in this uh, uh, the same entity, the Wagner Group, and like. Uh, private military companies throughout the world. Wagner was established and as, as an arm for uh, shady, sneaky dealings of its superiors, namely the Russian state and Putin's regime, um, and also giving them this plausible uh, deniability for all these deeds. And as a rule, these uh, PMCs, they uh, display um, much less legal and moral constraints than regular armies, and thus uh they commit more war crimes just think about uh nisur square massacre by uh blackwater in iraq but wagner specifically uh whose command uh, is stalked by uh notorious open nazi sympathizers um like its founder utkin uh so it turned their extremely brutal way of, of uh, waiting, wasting human lives uh, uh, almost to a brand that was promoted by state propaganda. So uh, there are constant war crimes committed in Syria, in Ukraine, in African countries. Um, they include um, executions of civilians, prisoners of war, of their own men. Um, they include uh, rape and sexual violence. They include... Um, uh, things like torture and extrajudicial killings of Ukrainians in uh, Kiev Oblast and um, this massacre of hundreds of people in uh, Mura, in Mali, and both were uh, occurred almost simultaneously, like in spring uh, 2022. Uh, so uh, Wagner Group is also heavily implied to have killed Russian uh, journalists who went to investigate their uh, dealings in the Central African Republic, and also uh, to have eliminated um, those of um, these pro-Russian irredentist um, warlords in, in Donbass, in eastern Ukraine, that were uh, deemed um, no more useful for, 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 for the Kremlin. So uh, this is the way uh, they, they were doing uh, this, um, their regular activities abroad, and uh, you can just imagine what they can do to uh, Russia, uh, the people of uh, what's now Russian Federation itself. So uh, in Africa, they, they engaged in some kind of 19th century uh, type uh, colonialism, uh, pillaging communities, uh, looting national resources, and installing military dictatorships. And actually, I think that the, uh, there were lots of um, parallels, lots of uh, analogies that emerged in uh, in Russian and Ukrainian social media uh, concerning uh, what can be compared to this uh, short-lived mutiny of uh, Prigozhin's forces. And uh, lots were uh, brought up, but I think that the closest one uh, was exactly uh, what you have already mentioned in the news uh, about the, uh, the recent and ongoing uh, conflict in Sudan, where um, a part of uh, of the ruling uh, military junta, namely um, these uh, rapid support forces, formerly the Janjavid, militias that were involved into genocidal acts in Darfur, uh, they uh, broke uh, with uh, the rest of the junta. And both these sides, they are equally oppressive, equally anti-democratic, and both uh, are Wagner clients. So uh, here we see this parallel, and I completely agree with uh, Professor Khrushcheva uh, uh, that um, this is a way uh, where you see an extremely uh, oppressive authoritarian uh, regime and uh, its 
it was opposed at this point by its part that is even more ultranationalist, outright, far-right, fascist. So uh, this is something that uh, both Putin and Prigozhin, they embody something very uh, terrible for both people inside Russia and outside Russia. So uh, as, uh, another analogy that was also brought up was uh, Mussolini's march in Rome. So you can, you can see the parallels. In addition to Denis Pilash in Kyiv, we're joined by Kimberly Martin, professor of political science at Barnard College, Columbia University. He's been working on the Wagner Group for years. <clears throat> As Denis Pilash talked about the far-reaching or <clears throat> the far-reaching tentacles of the Wagner Group, and I'm wondering if you can talk about, for an American audience, is this like Blackwater? Um, Talk about its origins. Give us um, a description of who, uh, uh, what the Wagner Group is, um, and its founder's relationship uh, with Putin. Thank you, Amy. Those are such important questions. The Wagner Group is not really a private military group in the way that we think of them as in the West. It is instead a contracting mechanism that has been used by the Russian military intelligence agency since 2014 for various purposes around the world. Um, it was first used in eastern Ukraine in uh, 2014. At that time, Prigozhin was not yet associated with it. It then took on contracting obligations in Syria as uh, an infantry group, and it was about that time that Prigozhin took it over. There is some evidence that he may have taken it over in a violent raid from its founder, Dmitry Utkin. Um, at that point, uh, in about 2017, 2018, Russia began to deploy the Wagner Group in various countries in Africa, in Sudan, in the Central African Republic, uh, in eastern Libya to support the warlord there, Khalifa Haftar. There was an attempt uh, to deploy it some places that didn't work out so well. Uh, recently, we've seen it go into Mali, um, and there are rumors that it also uh, may be going into Burkina Faso and to Chad. Um, and what we have seen about it is that it is an extraordinarily flexible contracting mechanism. While we just heard about all the terrible uh, human rights violations and murderous activities that uh, Wagner has, in fact, committed, it has not done anything worse than the uniformed Russian military forces have done. And so I think we have to keep in mind that the uniformed Russian military forces have been ab ab absolutely abysmal, have never followed the Geneva Conventions in terms of their attacks on civilians in Afghanistan, in Chechnya, uh, in Syria. And so Wagner does horrible things, but it's essentially manned by people who are coming primarily out of uh, the Russian security forces. Um, and it's very flexible. It has pilots working for it that can engage in air attacks. Um, it can be infantry. It can have uh, very high level, highly trained, highly disciplined snipers as it did in Libya. Um, and so it's, it's not something that's separate from the Russian state. It never has been. And this leads us to the question of who Prigozhin is. Prigozhin has made himself seem more important than he actually is. He has never been Putin's friend. He has always been Putin's servant. He started out life uh, being sentenced to 12 years in Soviet times in what was then Leningrad for common street crimes, robbery and burglary. He got out of prison two years early, which means at that time from everything we know, 
He probably made some kind of a deal with what was then the KGB, what became the FSB, the Internal Russian Security Services. At the time that he got out, uh, Putin was the deputy mayor of what was then St. Petersburg. Um, uh, Putin was responsible for overseeing all the contracting that occurred as capitalism was coming to Russia in St. Petersburg. Um, and so that means that Putin was responsible for overseeing the establishment of Prigozhin's hot dog stand, his grocery stores, um, and then his restaurants. And uh, when uh, Putin was entertaining guests in St. Petersburg, he would bring them to Prigozhin's restaurants. And then when Putin went to the Kremlin, he brought Prigozhin with him um, to do catering in the Kremlin uh, and then to have the catering responsibilities for the Moscow public school system and to do some military catering and then military cleaning work all before he became the person who was responsible for military contracting. Prigozhin has no combat experience. He is the middleman. He is the contractor. And what Russian um, social media sources have been saying recently is that people believe that the reason that Prigozhin has been kept on is that he has a longstanding relationship with the same organized criminal groups that Putin was associated with in St. Petersburg in the early 1990s. And Prigozhin knows who to pay off when contracts happen. So we have to keep in mind that everything is more expensive in Russia than it is in the West because everybody has to take their top off the contract. And apparently, one of Prigozhin's roles has been to figure out who was to be paid what amount of money on all contracts that were involved with the Russian military. And what seems to have happened is that Prigozhin's head got too big. He was being protected by Putin, and so he believed he was more important than he actually was. And this was um, just the latest step in a long-standing feud that he'd had uh, with the Russian defense ministry. And what we've seen is that he essentially got stopped in his tracks we don't know what's going to happen to him. One thing we have to keep in mind about everything we've seen in the last couple of days is that everybody we're analyzing is very skilled in disinformation and deception. And what we're seeing on the surface may not be what's happening uh, really in the background. And you believe, uh, can you see Prigozhin going to Belarus? Uh, uh, also, the role of Lukashenko uh, in all of this. And finally, um, on the issue of what has been agreed to now, there are some who are saying this came to a head because by July 1st, Shoigu was insisting that um, these military groups had to renew contracts. The deal that's being made now that some of these men, the fighters for Wagner, uh, could be incorporated into the Russian military. You've also—you uh, didn't mention the deal that Prigozhin made to get convicts out of prison to fight in Ukraine. Right. A lot of complex questions you raise, and I'll, I'll try to address them. Um, first of all, the only statement that we have about any deal being made came from Putin's spokesperson, Piskov. And so um, it was a very general statement that was made. We don't have any more information about that. Certainly nothing has been written down. Um, again, what is coming across on social media and also a really good Russian independent uh, press source called Medusa is that Lukashenko was primarily um, a 
playing a role in all of this. He was an actor, a prop who was being put forth as the person who was doing uh, the negotiation, when in fact the negotiation was probably happening by um, various members of Putin's administration. Uh, what Medusa has said is that Putin actually refused to speak with Prigozhin, that Prigozhin asked to speak with Putin, and Putin wouldn't speak with him. So it was various members of the Putin regime that were instead making this deal. Uh, one of the names that some people have been putting forth is Alexei Dumin, who is a lieutenant general who's had uh, a lot of military experience, a lot of security experience. He was the chief of Putin's security guards at one point. He's now the governor of the region of Tula. Um, so it's not really clear what happened with the negotiation or what the actual um, uh, uh, parameters of whatever agreement was reached are. We can imagine all kinds of things happening with Belarus. We can imagine, first of all, that this just gets forgotten, um, that Prigozhin gets bumped off and disappears and we never hear from him again. We can imagine him flying to Belarus and then flying to Africa um, to take charge of his forces that are in Africa uh, with the understanding that now he is to stay outside of Russia's immediate sphere of influence and never be seen again that way. Or we could see him going to Belarus with a group of his forces, which is what the Wall Street Journal has suggested, um, and now establishing a new Russian presence in Belarus, uh, perhaps for the purpose of helping Lukashenko stay in power. Now that there has been this uh, obvious instability in Russia, we've seen that it is something that is um, giving some more hope to the opposition forces in Belarus. Um, and maybe the deal that was reached is that now uh, Prigozhin will go to Belarus to help Lukashenko stay in power by adding some to the uh, Belarusian security forces. But at this point, it's all smoke and mirrors. We don't actually know what's happening. And the most important thing to keep in mind is that Prigozhin as an individual has never been quite as important as people have made him out to be. And he overstepped his bounds over the last couple of days. And it is very unlikely that um, Prigozhin comes out somehow on top in all of this. What it has shown is that Putin has been willing to allow himself to look weak. Um, and so the, the general sensibility is that even if it's not Prigozhin that threatens uh, Putin going forward, uh, now people within Putin's inner circle are going to be emboldened in a way that they haven't been before um, because Putin did not come out of this looking like somebody who was strong, who understood how to deal with things. And I would just point out before I stop here that it was not a bloodless event. What the Russian military reported on Saturday is that 13 Russian airmen, mostly helicopter pilots, a couple who were flying fixed-wing aircraft, were shot down by the Wagner forces as they flew overhead. Um, and that is something that the Russian military is not going to forget or forgive. It was not bloodless. There was, was the blood spilled um, by Russian military forces. Um, and so I think we're just the, at the beginning of what's going to happen, but neither Prigozhin nor Putin came out looking very good. And Denis Pilash in Kiev, we just have one minute, but Russia has the largest nuclear arsenal in the world. Are you concerned that Putin, who has clearly been embarrassed by this, would want to distract attention as he says he's moving tactical nuclear weapons uh, to Belarus? Are you concerned about this in Ukraine? Uh, we are mostly concerned both with this and also with the fallout after the Kakhovka dam destruction that was obviously made by the Russian explosion from inside. And uh, now there are reports that the 
Zaporizhia uh, nuclear power plant station, the biggest one in Europe, has been also mined. So this nuclear leverage is clearly on the table. But And the big problem is also about this general chaos in Russia, because Prigozhin is not the only oligarch uh, with an army of his, his own at his disposal. And almost every major corporation, starting with the fossil fuel giant Gazprom in Russia, has its own uh, private military company. And then you have um, regional governors with their military units as well. So this um, can spill out to even more chaos, but this also means that the myth of stability, one of the pillars of Putin's regime, has eroded completely. I want to thank you all for being with us. Um, I want to thank Denis Pilash, joining us from the capital of Ukraine, Kyiv. He's a Ukrainian political scientist. Kimberly Martin, professor of political science at Barnard College, Columbia University. And in Moscow, Nina Khrushcheva, who is professor of international affairs at the New School, great-granddaughter of the former Soviet premier Nikita Khrushchev. Of course, we'll continue to follow this. But coming up next, on the first anniversary of the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, We'll get an update on the state of abortion access in the United States with Amy Littlefield. Back in 30 seconds. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Hundreds of abortion rights supporters rallied in Washington, D.C. over the weekend to mark the first anniversary of the Supreme Court's overturning of abortion rights. Uh, uh, this is one of the protesters, Nadine Saylor. We need to be engaged. If we don't show up and if we don't participate, we get what we get. And what we get is our rights taken away. The protest came as anti-choice activists also rallied in D.C. This is Republican presidential hopeful, former Vice President Mike Pence, speaking to a gathering of conservatives um, who were talking about the decision by the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade as a historic victory, he said. But he said it didn't go far enough and called for a nationwide 15-week ban on abortion. Because of your work and because of your prayers— the Supreme Court of the United States sent Roe versus Wade to the ash heap of history where it belongs and gave America a new beginning for life. We're joined now by Amy Littlefield, abortion access correspondent for The Nation. She was in D.C. this weekend at both the protests and has a piece in the special issue of The Nation called The Body Politics. Her piece, The Message They've Received is You Don't Deserve to Be Cared for, Life on the Abortion Borderland. Amy, welcome back to Democracy Now! Lay out what happened this weekend and then talk in a larger way about what's happening around abortion in this country at a point where abortion is being banned um, in so many states, and yet the support for abortion is skyrocketing. 
Thanks so much, Amy. It's great to be back with you. I started out my weekend on Friday at the National Right to Life Convention, a gathering of the nation's oldest anti-abortion organization. And you might expect that a year after the Dobbs decision overturned Roe v. Wade, the anti-abortion movement would be celebrating, right? But that's not the case. And that's because anti-abortion leaders are coming to terms with two realities that are very unfortunate to them. And the first is that abortion bans that they have dreamed of instituting for decades that are now in place in 13 states, mostly concentrated in the South, are not working the way that they hoped they would. And they're also deeply unpopular. And so we've seen six ballot initiatives in the year after Dobbs, um, one pivotal Wisconsin state Supreme Court race. We've seen, you know, the red wave expected in the midterms that never was, all because of the outrage over the Dobbs decision. And then we've seen the latest numbers coming out from the Society for Family Planning that show in the nine months after the Dobbs decision, the number of abortions um, dropped by 25,000. Now that's the abortions that are being recorded. That is a catastrophically high number because every person denied an abortion that they want is a human rights tragedy. But for abortion rights opponents who have dreamed of instituting these bans for a generation, um, that is way lower than the number they expected. They were hoping it would be in the hundreds of thousands. And so they've realized that their bans are not working, that as the headline we testify in I Need an A put out a, a a fake newspaper um, over the weekend to, to mark the Dobbs anniversary, and the headline said, we are still having abortions all across the country. And that is true. So abortions, because of the robust grassroots infrastructure and, and clinicians who are going to heroic lengths to get people access to the care they need, abortions are still happening in every state in the country every day. And people familiar with the informal pill circulation networks have told me that there is more than enough medication abortion coming into the country and being circulated through these mutual aid networks um, to compensate for those 25,000 abortions that were not recorded in the nine months after Dobbs. So what we're going to see, I think, in the coming months, Amy, from the anti-abortion movement, our efforts to contend with the fact that the public doesn't like their bans and with the fact that the bans are not actually working. And so um, what I saw at the National Right to Life Convention is leaders like James Bopp, who, in addition to you know being longtime general counsel of National Right to Life, is also the architect of Citizens United, um, telling state um, affiliates that they need to institute much broader, more sweeping enforcement mechanisms, like using uh, RICO laws that were used to take down the mob, using anti-trafficking laws to make it harder to travel out of state, and to sweeten the deal for state lawmakers, sugarcoat those enforcement restrictions um, by using rape and incest exceptions, as if that, you know, that's going to be the red herring that we see to try to get much more extreme enforcement provisions to try to make these bans that aren't working work better. And then number two, we're going to see this PR campaign. Um, abortion bans are no longer to be called bans because the anti-abortion movement has realized that the word ban makes their policies less popular, even though that's precisely what these measures are. So we're going to see them being called protections or limits. Um, we're not going to see crisis pregnancy centers as much anymore because there's now a lot of robust information about how deceptive these anti-abortion centers are on the Internet. And so they're rebranding them as pregnancy resource centers instead. So there's a marketing campaign going on here to try to make their abortion bans more popular uh, at a time when a vast majority of Americans uh, uh, disagree with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and also to institute much more sweeping enforcement mechanisms. Uh, um, now, that's from the wing of the movement. Yeah, go ahead, Amy. No, go ahead, Amy. Keep going. 
So the next day, Saturday, I, I went to Washington, D.C., and, the, you know, it's important to state the National Right to Life Convention seems to be the wing of the movement that cares about public opinion, right? They care about the fact that the, that they've, you know, kind of subverted democracy um, by instituting these unpopular bans, and they're trying to figure out some workarounds there. In Washington, D.C., I saw, I went to a rally hosted by Students for Life. That was the rally where Mike Pence spoke. They invited all of the leading GOP candidates or all of the GOP candidates, and, and uh, Pence was the one who accepted the invitation. Um, he's vying to be the candidate of the movement. Um, they were rolling out, I will say, a much more overt plan. It's not a more extreme plan because, of course, the end goal of the anti-abortion movement across the board is protections for the embryo starting at the moment of fertilization, uh, a.k.a. a ban. Okay, let's call it what it is. Um, They are calling for using the 14th Amendment to apply due process and equal protection to the embryo from the moment of fertilization. And in fact, Lila Rose of the anti-abortion group Live Action said on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial that she uh, believes that this protection is already in place, that laws in states like New York that protect access to abortion are in violation of the 14th Amendment. So what we're seeing here is an attempt to uh, wrap their heads around the fact that they're not going to be able to pass new restrictions on abortion in this moment when abortion rights are are historically popular. Um, And so what they're trying to do is use existing laws that are on the book and get courts or perhaps the next Republican president to buy into this idea that the 14th Amendment protects embryos from the moment of fertilization. Now, the impacts of that, of course, would be um, kind of unfathomable. Let me ask you about a piece in The Intercept um, that has the headline, um, the FBI is hunting a new domestic terror threat, abortion rights activists. Can you explain what's going on at the national level? I mean, clearly, President Biden, Vice President Harris out on the first anniversary of the overturning of Roe, uh, supporting abortion rights. What's going on here? Right. So, I mean, there's a federal law called the FACE Act that was put into um, effect in the 1990s because anti-abortion militants were barricading abortion clinics, um, chaining themselves to cars, using militant, nonviolent civil disobedience tactics to shut abortion access down. It's been very sparsely enforced against anti-abortion groups over the years. Um, And what we're seeing now is that that law is actually being used um, to target groups like Jane's Revenge that are doing things like spray painting crisis pregnancy centers. Um, So, you know, the Intercept has done some great reporting on the consequences of, um, I think, the Biden administration feeling pressured to go after abortion rights groups. And certainly there is a sense from the anti-abortion movement that they are under attack, um, that, you know, they're getting threats, that that groups like Jane's Revenge are are targeting crisis pregnancy centers and are, um, you know, that there's a, a, a sort of more militant and then also in less militant ways that that the public is showing their opposition to these policies. Um, But, you know, I want to emphasize here, I I think this is part of a concerted effort by the anti-abortion movement to frame their opposition, to frame abortion rights supporters as extreme rather than being in the majority. Um, And, and, you know, I think the real extremism that was on display um, was at this, you know, Students for Life rally in Washington, D.C., where, for example, there was a man standing at the back of the rally holding a huge billboard-sized sign um, that said, you can't end abortion if women can still get away with murder. Now, this is related to the abortion abolition movement, to— 
to a group that's gaining power um, by saying you need to criminalize women and put them in jail for abortions. This is the fringe now, but we've seen over time that in the anti-abortion movement, the fringe has become the center. So I would keep an eye on these growing efforts um, to to punish people who have abortions and who self-manage their abortions. Amy Littlefield, um, abortion access correspondent at The Nation. Amy, we're going to continue the conversation after I'm posted at democracynow.org. Happy birthday to Karen Ranucci. I'm Amy Goodman.